Looking to generate more revenue and build relationships with gamers worldwide? Let Exola be your guide. Exola, a global video game commerce company, has helped thousands of game developers and publishers of all sizes fund, market, launch, and monetize their games globally and across multiple platforms. To learn more, please visit xsolla.pro slash A-O-I-A-A-S. Hi, I'm Austin Wintry, and this is The Game Maker's Notebook. Today I chat with Ben Starr, uh, the lead actor in the recently released Final Fantasy XVI. Our conversation went all over the place, starting with his childhood love of Jim Carrey and how uh, early forays into acting and theater uh, led to the career that he had. And uh, even though we zipped all over the place and, and kind of non-linearly approached his thoughts on the art, I found he consistently would drop little truth bombs and, and pearls of wisdom that I've been thinking about ever since we finished the conversation. So I'm sure you'll love it. It was a real treat to talk to him. Enjoy. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Ben Starr. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for for joining. This is one of those that uh, the number of times that I've done this with someone that I hadn't met before are pretty rare because I'm normally, you know, in the kind of composer to composer uh, shop talk with someone I've often known for years. So this is going to be fun because you're basically going to be indulging me just asking a bunch of intrusive personal questions and, and uh, you know, really prying into those things that make you uncomfortable and confront your inner demons, that whole, the whole nine yards. I want to be a husk by the end of this interview. I want to not even know myself we when will, you're done. We will break you down such that we might build you up. That's definitely, Fantastic. yeah, this is a very intense, very kind of uh, personal, vulnerable <laughs> podcast. Great. I mean, I had many years at drama school for that, so um, I welcome it. Please tell if me. There's what one I hate thing about I've learned topic. about actors: it's you know they're very hesitant to go uh, into personal places, and and you know they tend to be all very very hell you know re- like uh, reserved with their emotions, and so. Uh, but no, in all in all earnestness, uh, I, I'm I'm stoked uh, to get into it because you know one of the things that's. Uh, I should probably be slightly reserved in how I frame it, but it's a bit of a recurring theme. I think across a lot of the profession, the audio sphere of games, when I look at sound designers, composers, and actors as sort of subsets of the audio umbrella, um, it's a little bit of a toss-up on who among those working at high levels in the industry have... Are, are themselves actually gamers and kind mm-hmm. of embrace the medium. There are quite a few composers, for example, that don't necessarily play games outside of the time they spend working games. And the same could be said of sound designers. Um, it's probably a little less common to sound designers since it's just the technical nature of it even further than the rest. But also um, actors. It's a it's a bit of a... A lot of folks, I think, just see themselves as kind of booth voice 
types that go in there, get the lines done, and then go home. Yep. Um, but from everything I've 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 uh, come across about you, uh, you are quite thoroughly one of us, so to speak. I say as a proud gamer. I am uh, fully, fully, fully in it. It's. Um, I, I find it very strange that I'm at this point where someone who has played games and would say that their hobby outside of profession, you know, everything about my passion centers on video games. So to for, to be here is 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 very weird. And I'm just an actor who loves playing video games and has just gotten to play a major character in a video game as well. Um, I feel very weird about it. So does that mean that it was kind of like parallel lanes of your life, that you were always a gamer, you were always an actor, and only really in the last few years have they sort of interwoven, but they yeah. were both always there in one form or another, essentially? Yeah, completely. Like the performances that have um, shaped me as an actor and shaped me as a person are from video games. Um, all, oh, wow. Obviously also from TV, but there, it's it's it's... There well, are. let's start with that. That's a great, that's a great, uh, I would love to unpack what, which are some that have really, cause I, I want to get into your background and what led you to be a performer and also what got you into games, but set both of those threads aside for a second. Let's just look at some of the performances that shaped you. That's a really, that's a unique angle that we don't get to talk about on this show very often. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, when I first came across quality video game voice or just voice acting acting in general was metal mm. gear solid was the first i think mm. about the fact that that was on playstation one um and if you were to like do a side-by-side -side comparison of of acting on playstation one games metal gear solid is just head and shoulders above everything else um simply because it I is i mean pretty much across every way you could analyze that game it was so uh, it's, it's just light years ahead of its time, as they might say. In everything, in everything. And and I think that was the game that I first went, wow, this is amazing. And, it, and, and from that point on, I was Specifically doing, David Hayter or, or, I mean, uh, everyone, or the whole, the whole everyone. cast? David Hayter is iconic. His performance of, as um, Solid Snake is, is one for the ages. And he seems like a wonderful human. And I'd look forward to meeting him at some point um, and thanking him for what he did. But um, I think you know, Jennifer Hale as well. Like these people who have, who were there Speaking at the beginning. Commander Shepard. Well, I exactly. guess that was before we started recording, but yeah. <laughs> no, of course. But there was a great gag about Commander Shepard earlier, guys. You would have loved it. Um, yeah. But it was like, so risque though. We've had was, to cut uh, it. Oh, completely. Um, but I mean, there are, there are the obvious, there are the obvious choices, you know, like I think about when I first heard Nolan North as as Nathan Drake and, you know, Troy and Ashley doing The Last of Us. They are things that have just really, really, um, I just, I would show people this and go, this is art guys. This is what, this is what video games and actually just what any sort of medium can do, um, in, in tearing your heart out. Um, and, <laughs> in, and, your, in, in your, well, finish your thought. I have a question on that though. So say that again. No, I just, I just think that I, I think there are too many performances really to kind of like, in, especially recently. Um, mm. I, I keep just thinking about um, Abu Bakr Salim is a great friend of mine, and what the passion that he oh. brings to Assassin's Creed Origins is just as Bayek is absolutely heart wrenching, and just hearing people bear their soul over tens or hundreds of hours <laughs> is it's more than you get in a in a TV show in a film. It's a really really amazing 
thing to experience. And you just, you feel like you aren't just watching them, you are them. And it's such a difficult thing to tell anyone who doesn't play video games of how attached you can get to someone. And there are so many times that I have finished a game and I have felt compelled to reach out to either the creators or the the, the actors who perform those roles and say, thank you. So I recognize it now when people come up to that and say that about me. And although it might seem strange to some people, because I am that person who has felt compelled to do that, I... I I want to kind of, you know, uh, recognize that that is a, a perfectly acceptable and normal thing to do because they, they do make <laughs> you feel these things. It is a fascinating, uh, almost conundrum that if you don't play games, you simply can't, I think, appreciate that level of attachment. I remember having that specifically with Mass Effect where I've played through it multiple times and just became so invested in every little minutia. And, you know, I live in Los Angeles and most of my friends are filmmakers and don't, and, and quite a few of them don't really know that much about games. And there's, there was one director, writer, director, friend of mine in particular, where I just talked up Mass Effect for hours. And then finally he said, can I, how do I see the, is it, uh, you know, I'd, I'd sort of impressed upon him the scope of the game such that he said, well, I'm clearly never going to just sit down and just drop 80 hours on this trilogy of games. Uh, you know, that's like that's like binging an entire series that went five or six seasons. Uh, you know, it better be damn good. And, I, I, of course, I would advocate yes, of course. But hmm. uh, Mass Effect is probably a bit of a tough one if you're new to games. I wouldn't necessarily advocate it as one's first yeah. sort of as their entry point. But I remember pulling up some scenes and... Um, it was amazing how I could I could feel that out of body experience watching random clips of both gameplay and the cinematics, where it was like I was asking him to decipher a foreign language, and just like it would be like, here, watch this show in Italian as a non Italian speaker, yeah. and I could just see his eyes glaze over and all this and all these things that for me are heart rendering <laughs> moments. Mm-hmm. He just would look at him and say, yeah, I, you know, I, he sees a bunch of, especially the first game, you know, where you're talking about a game that's now pushing 15 years mm-hmm. and you're looking at, you know, stiff animations and not especially convincing lip sync voiceover. And, and depending on, you know, the NPCs, there's a lot of fairly dodgy performances mixed in there. Uh, and, and he's just going, I don't, I don't get it. And it was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess you really just have to. But I think to your point, the last few years, there's been, a, I think I think collectively your bunch has has really upped their game. And I think also game developers have really come to learn better how to leverage great performance because there's been a real exponential curve growth in the quality of performances and how many games you can count on. And even, even small games that before would never have even thought to budget Mm-hmm. acting period are now beneficiaries of great performance but i think about um, um i think about the end of death stranding and uh, the, uh, i don't know if you've ever played death stranding but it's a long so game. sadly i i bounced off that one hard i i wanted to love it i love the the kind of wild nuttiness of it i love that a game on that level had the courage to be as singular and unique but uh, I I made it like five or six hours before I was like I I'm supposed to 
I think love it by now. And everyone said, oh, you got to give it at least 15 hours or whatever. I thought, well, I'm yeah. sorry. That's a pretty tough buy-in for me. So no, so, but, but feel free to say whatever no, you want to say. Gonna say. I think one thing you should, you should do is instead of, instead of play the game is, is find Tommy L. Jenkins's speech at the end of Death Stranding. It's got, no, it's not a spoiler really. It's just a speech. Mm. And I will do that. I think what surprised so many people is that speech. He plays a character called Die Hardman, who at that point has essentially just his purpose has been giving you missions and has been right, seen. Yeah, I do remember meeting that character. And then you meet him in person. And there is this moment of the combination of, of what they did with the motion capture and his blisteringly honest performance. It's actually shocking. And I think a lot of people kind of go back to this scene that he gave. It is mm. so, so real and so raw and so let loose. There's no, there's clearly nothing holding him back technically. He just sits there and he delivers this speech in such, it's in, it's in 3D Dolby surround sound, all of it. It's amazing. And mm. um, I think about that scene regularly. And when people post about it on um on social media, I always watch it back because I just think it's, it's out of nowhere. And when you're thinking about like great video game performances, that it just surprises you. you know, you're thinking, wow, this is so moving of a character that had almost zero personality up to that point. His purpose was a quest giver. And yet the right. power of, <laughs> through the power of acting, he, um, he was just magnificent. Absolutely amazing. So just watch it. It's like, I think it's like a five minute scene. It's amazing. I, I just pulled it up and I have it, I have it queued up to, to watch when we jump right. off of this. Um, have you ever played Grim Fandango? The 97... So that for me is the one of a game where LucasArts had a lot of really great voice acting um, uh, in their point and click adventures. I think of the guy that plays the main character, Ben, in Full Throttle, the kind of motorcycle uh, comedy adventure game. Um, I can't think of the actor's name. That's a, that's a great one. That game also had Mark Hamill uh, yeah. in it as the bad guy, Rip Burger. Um, but um, but uh, Grim Fandango, Tony Plana as the main character, Manuel Calavera, Manny, uh, was one of those where I was in high school and I played that and it just the whole game elevated my perception of what artistry in games could be because yeah. it was everything. The writing, the the voice acting top to bottom a few years ago, I guess it would have been 2017 for the 20th anniversary at E3, they did a table read. They got all the actors back together again and did the table read of, of sort of famous scenes from the game. And it was unbelievable because it made you realize every character, even, even side characters that had a handful of lines, you do one puzzle with them and then you move on, were memorable performances and writing both. And mm -hmm. it's just, it's such a masterpiece of that. But, but Manny in particular, one of my favorite scenes is the scene where you first meet Meche, who kind of becomes the, you know, finding her is sort of the driving quest of the game. Um, and she's sort of the, the romantic love interest in the context of the, um, uh, of the film noir meets Mexican folklore, Day of the Dead kind of mashup that the game does. It's so good. I highly recommend it. They remastered it. It's on yeah. Steam and PS5 and PS4. Uh, I, I, it's well worth your time. Um, it's just such a classic and it holds up pretty well. Some of the Puzzles are surprisingly challenging because it is a 1997 game where mm -hmm. they just sometimes would throw things at you. We were like, how was I supposed to figure this out other than just brutal trial and error? But um, but there's a great scene where you first meet her where you're, the whole thing is you play a Grim Reaper 
which they call a travel agent to the land of the dead. It's a very Tim Schafer yeah. game. And uh, so she's in the kind of body bag thing that you arrive into the, the land of the dead through. And everybody is these skeletons and he carves it open. Um, and she looks at him and says, you're not the nurse. And he, trying to play it cool, says, no, but I am here to ease your pain. And then she um, has this moment where she realizes she's died. And she says, ah, I guess they couldn't save me. And it's just this three little lines yeah. exchange of of capturing that discovery that you've died moment. Um, and it's not really played for laughs, um, uh, but it's 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 a very short little moment as a as a teenager it just blew me away yep. because there was so much poetry baked into such simple lines just the idea of capturing that awakening of oh crap I I, I just realized where I am it was so amazing and, and with, with different there. actors it wouldn't have, say again but I think you're onto something there because what you've described is how that amazing synergy and I, and, I, and I love this the most when you have the synergy between the writing and the acting and obviously an actor is only as good as the words that he has, the he, she, they have to say. Um, and I, I think it is that you've just described an amazing scene that has just really in, in three lines has distilled an emotion and the actor has probably just said the lines, you know, they probably haven't put that much feeling into them, but it's that amazing moment of those moments coming to life. And I've found that in my career is a lot of the things that people like are actually things that I have done very little work on. I just said what was in hmm. front of me and I'm taking credit for it. When in fact, it's like, if you get the simplicity of the writing, then actually, obviously actors can elevate the work. Um, and I think that in... 2023, we are now seeing brilliant, brilliant writers working on incredible stuff and allowing actors that freedom to 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 bring it to life. But yeah, you're right. Well, you're right. tell right. me if you agree with this hypothesis. It would seem to me that uh, the simpler the writing, meaning the more distilled and all the fat trimmed, the more the writer is trusting the actor downstream to pack it full of all that meaning and subtext. And I think that overwritten parts tend to be so because there's a belief that maybe the actor won't be able to sell it or they don't even know who they're going to have cast yet. And there's just this certain, well, we know we need to get X, Y, Z across. And, you know, some of that probably could come through subtext, but we, we can't take that chance. So we're just going to kind of pack it, pack it all in. Is that a fair, do you feel that as an actor, if you're looking at something that's pretty elaborate and you think, oh, I bet we could do this with less. Yeah. And that, that requires just a good script editor. Like that's pretty much what, what it needs is it just needs cutting. And we're always told to just play the lines. The rest of it will do the work. And if you're over explaining, it's because you don't trust the audience. And you don't trust your own writing. You haven't done a good enough job of setting it up. I'm always infuriated whenever I, um, I let's say I've done a, a, a film, film or a TV show, let's say a TV show, and I go in to do some ADR afterwards and I'm looking at the scene and I see that a producer has added lines has suggested right. lines and said, I need, we need a, we need a line here and I'll, I'll have to record it usually, you know, with your back turned and you're, you're in a booth in Soho. And it really, really annoys me because often, and I'm not saying this is, is a universal, the line isn't needed at yeah. all, but it's because a producer thinks that the audience won't be clever enough to pick up on it. And I get so annoyed because I think actually, this is really clear. It's all, it's all, clear in the writing it's clear in the direction it's just they don't trust that because they're worried that someone won't pick up anything that in the plot and it's a frustrating 
thing because it doesn't feel honest. It feels what you're seeing there is the artifice. And I'm uh, like my fiance and I, we always, whenever we're watching, um, she's also an actress. And whenever we're watching TV, it's, it's when you see at the beginning, the, you know, the plot structure where they go, this is what we're telling you about. And this information is incredibly important. And it will just be, it will be signposted at the beginning. And you think, well, that's going to come back. It's like Chekhov's gun. That is, that is important because you've made a point, (laughs) you know, it's like, we've gone in, you've gone in a, a a very particular close up, and we've said those lines. Um, because that's going to be important later on down the line. And most people won't pick up on it. Um, but uh, we always do go like, well, that's important then, isn't it? Um, and well, it's, it's probably be- because you've been told repeatedly, whether in the booth or on a set or whatever, this is the way we're going to keep like, this is that make sure, you know, that it's very, very clear to the audience because if, you know, this is the, the that, this is that exposition, uh, this yeah. is that signposting. I imagine it's been rather bluntly hammered into you on more than one occasion that, yeah, you know, that this scene carries that weight. Yeah. And most of the time you just want it, you just want the character, you want the character to do the work. And then when you're told basically that you have to lie, you have to say this because entirely for plot reasons, not for character reasons, it really, right. really annoys me. Um, I like face. framing that as lying. I've, I've, I've had other actors say that they think that the the, the highest for, form of acting is is sort of maximal truth telling. You know that you're that the character sort of comes to life in such a real way that you're you're just trying to be honest and it, it's not yeah. professional deception in in what acting would on its face suggest, but it, it in yeah. fact the opposite. So it's interesting to frame it as, oh, now you're asking me to lie because this character wouldn't actually say this. This is just the screenwriter or mm-hmm. the producer even talking directly to the audience and using this actor as a mouthpiece to do it, essentially. Yeah. And that's dishonest inherently. This may sound really wanky, so I'm, I apologize for saying it, but um, th- whenever kind of my people ask me what's the difference between amateurs and professionals other than the pay is that like when you're a really good amateur you're really really good at lying and it's like when you're a professional you're really really good at telling the truth and that it's it's like you it's need a great to little find, summary you need to tell the truth in everything even if it's fake and it's finding that way of of being honest or finding the honesty in any moment as a as opposed to being very good at, at selling the artifice and they're, they're very very they're subtle differences, but you can tell, especially when you have a camera this close or you're this close to a microphone, you can hear it in your voice. You can see it in the face. Um, you know, a moment that springs to mind kind of out of the blue, as you say that, where I thought um, one of those moments where it felt like it felt like I was being spoken to incredibly honestly is I love that moment in Return of the King when everything looks at its most dire and um, Pippin says to Gandalf, I didn't think it would end this way. And he says, this is not the end. This, you know, death is just another path. And he gives this description of what lies beyond mm-hmm. um, in Valinor and the idea of, of uh, sort of going into the afterlife. Um, and it's one of those beautiful cinematic moments where they're in the middle of the battle and everything is chaotic. But of course, all the sound of that bleeds away into the distance and, and, um, we get a little precursor of the of the uh, Annie Lennox into the West melody that will appear later in the end credits. That's our first hint of that uh, in the score, and and it's just one of those very wonderful cinematic moments. But but Ian McKellen is so calming 
and reassuring yeah. in that moment. It, it really is, It despite all the cinema tricks of making the sound go away and zeroing in on these close-ups so that we lose perspective on the fact that five feet away there's a troll trying to kill them. Um, it's his performance that really, I think, makes you go, I'm ready. Bring, yeah. bring on the afterlife. I yeah. completely believe his reassurance. Yeah, I think it's the power of those actors. Like when we talk about Ian McKellen, Ian McKellen gets so much stuff for free. When people say that they could just read the phone book and Ian McKellen can do can do very little. He can afford to do very little because he just possesses an authority that we endow him with. And so it allows him a freedom to be that. And I think a lot of people worry about trying to force that. You know, there mm. is just some actors, Brian Cox, you look at Brian Cox in succession, basically plays Brian Cox, but is like, is, is so powerful with it that it's just, there's brilliance, there's brilliance there. And I think Ian McKellen is Gandalf. There is no, there is no difference. Ian McKellen is Gandalf because he just has that authority that means that he can break all the rules that other people would probably try and, you know, stick to. And um, mm. it's, it's, it's really great when an actor like that is, you know, creates the rules and then breaks them down and makes and, and breaks your heart as a result of it. Um, yeah. Let, let's, um, let's roll it back. Um, I, I love, I love hearing your kind of analyses of these and it makes me want to just name a bunch of performances and hear your, your two cents on them. But let's, let's, uh, I want to keep it, you know, on you. Um, and so, uh, the the sort of two parallel lanes of your life. I'm curious to kind of get to the origins of both of those, uh, both when you sort of discovered acting and performance and what led to that, um, irrespective of games, and then also what got you into games. What you know, where was those earlier earliest gaming memories? Which ones kind of were that spark, that one that made you just go, oh, I need I need a steady dose of this in my life. So take yeah. your pick about which one you want to unpack first. But I'd love to really get to know both of those. Uh, they happen separately, obviously they're not, they're not the same thing. Acting was, I used to watch my mum in local theater. So I used to watch two things, actually. I used to watch my mum in local theater. So I used to watch her do like what we in this country call pantomime. Um, mm. and every Christmas I'd watch her play like- Where, where was this happening? Where- This is in the West of England in a town called Clevedon. Uh, just outside of Bristol. Um, mm, okay. And it was this, like the most local of the local. Um, and I would watch her do that every Christmas. And those were the first, those were the first shows that I would see live is watch my mum on stage, you know, and probably like a hall of my, like 90 to hundred people. But acting wise, the person who made me want to be an actor was Jim Carrey. Um, I wa wow, no kidding. It was Jim Carrey. I, Cause I grew up, I, I was born in 1988. So I was so uh, easily influenced around the time that Jim Carrey had his insane year of the mask Ace Ventura. This man was giving clown like I'd never seen. Um, and as a, as a kid who probably wasn't able to tell the truth <laughs> as an actor, I was able to impersonate and I found hmm. myself doing impressions of Jim Carrey in the mask and learning all the quotes and everything and running around and imagine this six, seven-year-old kid running around doing impressions <laughs> of Jim Carrey. I learned to speak in an American accent as a result of Jim Carrey. Like I just, everything about his performance was so accessible and exciting to me. And um, it like a bit like the character itself, I was able to don the mask and I became a very extroverted, I already was an extroverted kid. 
but it allowed me to be more extroverted because I could do cool impressions of Jim Carrey. Um, and that was the, that was the start of it really. Um, and then I thought I wanted to be an actor. Um, I decided I either wanted to be a fast train driver or an actor. So it was one of those two things. Um, uh, <laughs> that's quite a dilemma that most people um, can't empathize with, I suspect. Such an, such an approachable story there. Uh, yeah. Cause <laughs> I was scared of the trains that would go past at my local train station. I thought that if I drive the train, then I wouldn't get scared anymore. Um, uh, or, or be an actor. And, um, then my, did you ever try your hand at it? Have you ever, have you ever, uh, never. how close did you get on that one? I got, I once rode first class in a train. So that's the closest I've ever got to the front of a train. Um, that's, I feel I, like somebody, I, hopefully some writer is taking note of this and needs to write you apart as a train yeah. conductor now. Oh my God. Imagine, imagine the game as well. Let's do it in a video game as well. I'm, I'll voice a train. Um, I was obsessed with Thomas the Tank Engine as a kid as well. So, you know, make we'll need to make need. an entire game out of the opening sequence in Half-Life where you're taking the tram down into the, you know, yep. into work at, at Black Mesa. Yep. Someone should make, I always thought this could be uh, some sort of wonderfully esoteric indie game is just riding around or being, yeah, we'll make it, we'll expand on a little bit. And it, it needs a conductor who's shuffling people yeah. around in the, in the, you know, in the top secret military base. I mean, maybe that could be, the be you. Portal Three. Maybe Portal Three. We find the train, the dis, a disused train, um, like Glados, except just a maniacal train. Um, I sold. Yeah, there you go. Sell it, guys. There it is. It's yours. Take it. Um, I my mum's friend then saw an advertisement in the local paper, being like, um, "He, they're doing open auditions for the national touring company of Les Misérables. Ben would be really hmm. good." And I went to like an open audition and I auditioned in the day and I was offered the part of the little urchin boy Gavroche. And then I was on a professional stage in front of two and a half thousand people in Bristol for three months doing Les Mis. Um, and that was the start. Wow. And I really wanted to continue that, but I just did amateur theater. I did school plays and stuff. And then I always knew I was going to go to drama school. I was going to go to university. I was going to go to drama school. Then I was going to be an actor. That's what I was going to do. And the boring story is I did it. I just, I, there was never any like, is it going to happen? It was no, I, I went to the, um, university I wanted to go to. I went to the drama school I wanted to go to. And then I graduated and that first three months out of drama school was probably the most depressing three months of my life because the, the, the plan stopped at that point. It was like, now be an actor. And then you, uh, how, what, what do you do? Like Meaning this thing that was forever a horizon that you were walking towards, you somehow reached the horizon and looked around and went, yeah. What? And I was, there's nothing here. <laughs> there's nothing here. There's nothing here, but your own endeavor and your own failure. And, um, you've now got to do this by yourself. No one's holding your hand. You don't get taught anything. You had to have to go out and be good. Or be right. Did drama school not prepare you for that? Once you graduate, you're, you're, you yeah. know, the, the, the slog begins. There's a reason why, you know, I live in Los Angeles, half the waiters and baristas are actors. You know, there's a reason mm -hmm. for that because that period especially is really tough. That must've been a theme in school. Yeah. They tell you you're going to be a failure. They tell you you're not going to succeed. They tell you that it doesn't matter how good you are. There is always going to be someone who is as good, just more right. Um, but when you go to a good drama school, <laughs> as good I, and more right, that's that's the 
that's the memoir uh, title. Uh, yeah. Because uh, that is, boy, is that uh, a perfect summary of, of how you can do uh, There's that great Jean-Luc Picard line where he says to Data, it's possible to do everything right and still lose. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I like that. I got to write do. that down. You regularly do. And it, it there's nothing that can prepare you because every kid who goes to RADA or Lambda or Guildhall or Juilliard or whatever, you know, great drama school you want to list, they were all the best in their hometown or the best at their university or whatever. They were all great. Um, but only a few can succeed because every single year more actors are, you know, more actors come in and people aren't retiring. You don't retire. So yep. the, the market just gets flooded and flooded and flooded. And it's, it's really, really hard. And, um, I was fortunate enough to go to a great drama school, Lambda. Um, and I was brutally, honestly, I was promised a lot. And I, they said, Ben, you're going to, you know, there was this, there were, I was pulled into the principal's office and I was told, Ben, you might do quite well when you leave. Um, which is a, which is an interesting conversation to have, and so naturally you're filled sort with this of a sense of guarded optimism. Yes, yes, it was. A, you could do quite well. I was the first in my year to get an agent, and there was this preparation. It was this is what you need to prepare for because things might happen for you, and they didn't. Um, it, I was very lucky to to work very regularly, but in no kind of grand capacity. Um, and it took me three years before I was able to fund myself completely from being an actor. Um, and, and three years must be faster than the average. I, I was so lucky. I was so, so lucky. Um, every time I think of these, these inflection points in my life, um, this is the one that changed it all. Um, and it was the moment where I met the right casting director at the right time who then cast me in another thing afterwards. And at that point, it just, everything snowballed to a point where I was able to buy my own house. I was able to kind of set up a foundation from which I can continue to fail just a little bit more comfortably. Yeah, um, yeah. It gives you that crash landing of like, it's okay when things are hard, I can still go back to the things that I've built so I don't all fall all the way back to the floor. Um, I think so. A lot of what you're saying, I I feel very connected to, and and I relate to. Uh, like when you mentioned having a sort of boring story of latching onto an idea early on and then single mindedly pursuing it until it happened. It's very much the same with me. Uh, I I always admire those folks that kind of wander the world as these sort of uh, nomads, and then they find the thing, and then they become this great this great artist. You know, like you look at the history of. Hollywood music, for example, where you've got someone like John Williams, who's, you know, far and away the most famous composer to have ever scored films and one of the most famous composers ever. And you read about, you know, his childhood playing jazz trios in Hollywood. And then he goes and serves in the U.S. military doing band arrangements. And, and then he became a session pianist playing for people like Henry Mancini on classic scores like Peter Gunn. And, and uh, he played the piano solos for Elmer Bernstein on the original uh, Gregory Peck To Kill a Mockingbird. And, you know, he was just a gigging musician. And, and um, and then kind of slowly made his way and did 10 years of forgotten comedies before he ever met Steven Spielberg, for example, and the whole. And there's there's something and even that, you know, it was lifelong as a musician. Sometimes these these folks, you know, they come into it such another way. I remember when I was in in my music school, there was a there was a guy in my class who had completed a doctorate in uh, like psychology or something and then just decided 
I I don't want to do that. I want to pursue it. I always envied those people in a way because I'd been obsessed with music since I was a kid and chased it so single-mindedly. So I feel a certain <laughs> you're you're making me feel better about my own boring life story uh, by um, by echoing it in a way and yet not being boring, which is which is um, nice to hear. And likewise, I love the way you're framing this like foundation. The, the way I've always framed that is I always measured my earnings based on if I, if all work stopped today, how long could I survive? How much of a nest egg can I build? So life was always measured in initially it was months. And then once I reached the point that it was, I could theoretically go a few years and, and retain and and, and make no extra money. Did I finally feel like, I I guess I'm on two legs Mm -hmm. on some level, you know, finally that, that, that like this, this has, this has gotten me where, yeah, I can afford to fail and experiment and try things that don't work out. I, you, you said it beautifully. I'm essentially just echoing it right back at you. I think you're right. It's so It was so comforting. I was doing a play at the National Theatre, which is a big theatre in London, um, uh, uh, quite a while ago now. Um, and I, we were on at the same time because there are different theatres in the National. And uh, we were on at the same time. Uh, where with King Lear was on at the time. And it was mm. played by a very kind of respected actor in the UK called Simon Russell Beale. And um, after the shows, we would all kind of go back into the bar and, and, and talk about, you know, what we've been doing for the day. And I, and I, I met Simon quite a few times. And Simon Russell Beale is, in this country, a national treasure. He is just one of those, the greats of British theatre and film, mm. but like a very, very famous stage actor. And... I, you know, casually asked Simon what he was doing after this. And he went, I don't know. I don't know, dear. I'm terrified. And it was amazing. How old were you? How old were you when, when you heard that? Oh, I think I was 20, I think I was 24, 25 when I heard it. Um, and I, at that point I was still, you know, in that, in that period of, of having to do other jobs outside of, of, um, work. As soon as I finished this, that job, I would have to go back and, you know, go back to the day job and make some money. And it was interesting to hear that even at that point in his sixties, he was maybe 70s, 60s, I think he was really, really scared. And I thought, okay, that's, that's interesting. Even, even people who you'd think you'd imagine wouldn't be scared. And I imagine it's not because of the money. It's probably to do with the fact that he loves working and he loves the work. But, um, that's kind of maybe how I want to be when I'm older. I want to always want to be working. Um, I, well, what's I, the alternative, you know, the kind of complacency of like, yeah, you know, there's a lot going on. I can, I can, I can pick and choose and yeah, and, uh, it's feels very like this. If at minimum, like there's, of course there's going to be payoffs to that, but there are trade-offs more accurately, but, but if the art of it is really kind of your driving motivation, mm-hmm. then that, that comfort can be a little bit, uh, of an insidious, thing that sneaks up to you and you know promises you attractive things but but actually won't help you Mm. also won't help the art you'll get this you'll understand this but this idea that what your job is your art and your passion so how do you separate yourself from those moments how do you separate your self-worth from those moments and it has been it is a continuing learning curve for me to um dissociate all of those things like, um, I'm very fortunate that my love, my great, great love of being a performer is also something that I get paid to do. Um, and that's, that's a really psychologically different, difficult thing to deal with. Um, 
because mm. you place yourself out there and then you are critiqued or if you're not having the opportunity to do it it's it's very hard to not put your self-worth into that um what where do you retreat to um outside of it and i'm and i'm constantly battling with that and i and i talk about with artists just in general you know comedians composers directors um about about that and we all deal with it quite badly um but also <laughs> fortunately quite openly it's a real real struggle and i understand people who can you know people who you would imagine to be um basking in their success are actually in in bouts of deep 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 depression because they're battling with things that it's just impossible to see um because oh, of yeah. that that conflict between the work that you do and how it's received yeah well and also i think I think um, creative work requires a certain amount of vulnerability and keeping that turned on all the time can really also completely irrespective to what the outside world perceives or how you handle critique and all that. Just, just keeping, it's like keeping the windows open all the time. Shit's just going to get in. And that mm -hmm. is, that is an unavoidable consequence if that's how you have to be. I mean, when you were talking about being so inspired by, um, the kind of ultimate clown of Jim Carrey, uh, especially in that era, uh, truly one of the great performers. I was thinking um, uh, how at, at the exact same time, we also had the absolute genius of Robin Williams hitting his stride um, in such a big way. And I mean, he's, he was big for a long time, you know, obviously going back to Mork and Mindy, but, but the 90s saw him just, you know, one huge amazing performance after another um uh and and also we started to really see his his range you know you have awakenings and things like that starting to really show that mm. he wasn't just the clown he had this incredible depth uh, as a performer but but I, I, that's what that's i was thinking about him as you were talking about jim carrey but sadly robin williams is also a a, a very tragic example of somebody yep. who who we we had no concept for how much struggle there was uh, in in being such a kind of open. I was. It's like a live wire. You know, these you, you unsheath the 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 wire, and so everything that touches it just channels electricity in all directions, and that can be incredibly destructive. Mm -hmm. I think some of the most creative people I've ever met have also been the most destructive, because I think you know, imagining them like just whatever like beams of light just bouncing around a room and they're going to hit brilliance constantly and you're just going to be in awe of what they can do and th then you see can see them crash land in the worst possible ways because how do you maintain that when someone shines so brightly and i have many colleagues who i've seen shine so brightly and then and then the opposite and then the sadness comes and and it's 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 hard to keep it up robin williams uh, well, as soon as you said it my eyes went yeah oh my god i i re recently rewatched mrs doubtfire and there's a scene in mrs doubtfire where he is i think he's asking a bank manager for a loan or something and you can see what they did is they just put the camera on robin williams and then they just let him improvise for three, well, I imagine for about an hour. And then they just edited <laughs> right. in best bits. It's, it's, it just wasn't, none of it was in the script. They just went, Robin, go. And it's, it's magical. There's nothing. I imagine none of those lines are in the script. And he just went off on one. And it's, it's so, that you, his mind is so fast. 
you're seeing it work. You're seeing his brilliance just happen. I don't think even he's in control of it. It's just something outside of himself that is just so quick. Um, that man is mercury. He really, yeah. really. I saw a thing recently that his his line at the end of Goodwill Hunting, where he reads the note that says, "I've gone to go see about a girl," and he says, "Bastard stole my line," or something. That apparently, even that was improvised. Uh, uh, you know, where it's just his. Yeah, he was a one of a kind. Uh, 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 no matter how what, no matter what dimension you're looking at, I mean, he just yeah, it's, it's a real, it's a real tragic case because he was just so gifted and and. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, how do you? So, uh, not <laughs> to get too far afield, but how do you? How, I told you this is gonna. We're gonna get into some real shit Let's here, man. Wait, wait, wait to hold me to my word. <laughs> but how do you? How do you? Um, the thing that you said that I loved was the way you phrased it, where you said, um, "We it's difficult to not attach our self worth." when we're actively trying to maximize our sort of professional worth. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I guess I would just broadly say unpack that more for me because I can imagine a lot of different ways to sort of slice that apart and, 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 and um, unpack meaning from that. But I'm curious if you have further thoughts or, or especially your strategies. I'm sure actors, composers, writers – will hopefully listen to this later and probably benefit from any insights you've gained so far along these lines. I mean, how, how do you deal with this? Um, I don't know if I'm being really honest. I think it's, (laughs) it's, it's, you just figure it out and make all the mistakes. It's something that I'm really currently working on. Um, Mm. in there's a really dangerous thing within the UK and maybe it's in the US. I imagine it's just in, in society in general. When you go on a game show, they say, what's your name? Where do you live? Uh, so what's your name? What do you do? And where do you come from? Um, and those are so harmful because those are apparently the three most important things. What is your name? Which we all take, you know, we instantly judge you. What do you do? We judge what you do and where do you come from? And those are then the immediate impressions that we make of something, of someone. They're how we de- immediately define them, that we want to know who they are by what they do f- for their job. And when I say that I'm an actor, people immediately make an idea about who I am. They immediately think that I'm probably, probably just assume know. you make a mean cup of coffee. <laughs> That's what they <laughs> Yeah, no, I do. Um, you want one? I, I, um, uh, they, they just instantly think that, oh, he's a show off or, oh, he's, right. he's, I get a lot of people whenever I'm talking to someone, I have had it regularly, often at weddings where people are like, oh, you're such an actor. And <laughs> I'm just like, no, no, what I do for, I know a lot, I know lots of reclusive actors. I just happen to be, I just happen right. to enjoy being in a conversation with someone. Um, I know lots of people who are far more animated than I am in a conversation who are not actors, but people want to attach me to my job. They also then want to attach my self-worth. So if you go to a wedding, and often this happens at weddings because that's what I'm so present at, or if like a social event where you're meeting new people, you're forced to hang out with people um, where who don't really understand what you do. And then you say, you're an actor, what have I seen you in? And then if they haven't seen me in anything, then I right. my value to them is less. It's oh, yeah. exciting if I am in something, but then it's not. So it's impossible not to attach my worth. And then to a random stranger, I'm trying to convince them that what I do is a value to them, even though I don't care. You know, I don't right. say to you, oh, you're an accountant. What have you added up recently? Haven't heard of it. 
therefore you're not yeah. an accountant. What are your accounts? Which yeah. Fortune 500 companies do you manage the books for? And that'll be yeah, how I exactly. assess your who, value in this moment. Who have you laundered money for recently? Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't, but we don't get that with any other job, but because it is such a front facing thing that if you don't get an applause at the end of it, or you don't get adulation, or you're not in a TV show that someone's watched, it's, you're failed. You're a failed actor, or you're a, you're a jobbing actor, or you're a this type of actor. Unless you are famous, unless you are winning an Academy Award or you're on uh, on the, the front face of a TV show or a poster on a billboard in, in Times Square, then you're not successful. And people judge you by that a lot. And so when it's constantly forced upon you that I'm going, why am I trying to justify myself to this 74-year-old woman who all she ever does is watch reruns of Dallas and I'm, and I'm suddenly having to kind of like list my CV to her. And if she hasn't seen anything, then I feel bad about myself. Um, you know, it's, it, it's so difficult to do. But I imagine the therapist would look at that and say, that's actually not that woman's fault. It, it is very much... Yes. Like your responsibility to be perfectly okay with her uh, yes. not knowing what you've done. And, but while recognizing, and of course I relate to this deeply, that that is not the first instinct of a creative person. We make things generally, most creative people, I would argue, to with the hope of sharing it with other folks, which means that sharing it with five people is not as good as sharing it with a hundred versus mm -hmm. 10 million and so and so forth. So, so yeah, it's better if more people have, have heard of your work. Uh, you know, it was, yeah. it was, it was like, uh, I, I, I have plenty of stories of the composer's perspective on that as well that I could, and I definitely relate to what you're describing, but it is, mm -hmm. but you're, but you're absolutely spot on that you are effectively giving power to a random stranger to make you feel bad. And for what? It's, mm -hmm. it's no purpose. It serves no purpose. And you feel like an idiot. You feel like a complete idiot because you just, you come away from that conversation and all you've done is you've, you've diminished yourself for no reason because it doesn't matter if that person hasn't seen you in anything. It doesn't matter. And yet sometimes there's that compulsion to do that. And I have learned to not do that. Um, it mm. took a while. Um, but it is, it is difficult sometimes. And you're right. It is, by the way, it is something I have spoken about with my therapist um, because you have to. And I think you, it's always a learning process. You're never going to get it right first time. And sometimes you are going to get caught off guard. But I, I would imagine that what I've said has happened to quite, it's happened to a lot of my friends and how it continues to happen to a lot of my colleagues. Um, we always say, how was the wedding? And there'll always be the person on the table who asked them to list their IMDb. And it's... <laughs> It's so British. It's just such a British thing. And unless you've done like, um, like a Midsummer Murders, or um, which is a very popular show in the UK, or you know, a, a, a Death in Paradise, which I've done both of, they um, they don't care. Um, so it's right. you know, or, or you're on a soap. If you're on a soap, it's a huge thing in this country. If you're in something called Emmerdale or Coronation Street or or whatever, um, that's so yeah, funny. We used to get this a lot and a lot of actors around, around kind of like my, my age who came out around, you were basically were working five or six years ago. Um, you'd always get, you should be in that game of Thrones. You should be in that. You get people say, you should be in that game of Thrones. You should be in that, um, that Downton Abbey, the two biggest shows in the world at the time. And people yeah. would just suggest that I should just go and be in that show. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that, yeah, they, they, they'll find a spot for you. Just go let it, just ring them up. Just ask. If you don't ask, you don't get.
Yeah, yeah, that's always it's funny because you mentioned something that you said that harkens me back to that. Uh, what you just said takes me back to a comment you made earlier when you said you go to drama school and you're suddenly surrounded by people who were all the top actor in their little small community wherever they come from. And that's such a phenomenon that people outside of our kind of world don't fully understand is that almost every composer, for example, unless you happen to be one who grows up in LA, New York, London, which is comparatively few, then chances are you are the only composer that anyone in your entire life before the age of 18 had ever met. Because composers are pretty rare, generally speaking, like especially contrasted to just broader, oh, I play guitar or I, I sing or whatever, just like musicians in some more generic sense. But someone who actually says, oh, I actually want to write music for a living. And so what happens is all these 18-year-olds are told by every adult they've ever interacted with for 18 years or however long, you're a genius. I've never met a composer. You must be something really special. And then they all are faced with that whiplash of then going to, you know, even even like a community college, never mind if they manage to get into a Juilliard or a, a Curtis or a Manhattan School of Music or a, one of these top conservatories, um, where suddenly they realize, you know, best case scenario, I'm in the middle of the pack here. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, uh, realistically, uh, I'm going to be surrounded by talent that I, I didn't even know was possible. And and nobody ever really understands that that arc from the outside who hasn't really lived it. So you... you um, it yeah, only gets I think harder. that there's something about that that's weirdly universal to artists or creative people. I think that that it there are so many stages where you realize where you are, and um, it's not about being good because <laughs> you're just let's just take let's just take it as as rote that that everyone's really good at what they do, and mm. if you can understand that, and if you can if you can settle that in your mind, and know that talent isn't always that important because everyone is talented, then maybe you can kind of start to develop as an artist. And I think it's very difficult to not look left and right, especially when you're at drama school in particular, you are comparing yourself to the people in your year, which feels like the right thing to do at the time when you shouldn't. Because what's going to happen is if you were the best in your year at drama school, fantastic. Well, guess what? You're about to go into a profession where people are the best at what they do in general. And everyone was then the best at their year at drama school. And they're the people who are still working. They're the people you've got to worry about, but you don't, you can't worry about them because you just have to kind of think about what it is that you can do. And as long as you know that the best thing you can do is your best. And that's so hard. The best thing that you can do is deliver what is, is unique to you then that is, that is the only way you're ever going to do it. It's like, shout for us, a self-tape, a voice tape, usually a, a self-tape for, you know, whatever film and TV. You shout into the internet and you don't expect anything to come back. And then sometimes it does, and that's really surprising. And um, then you, you're very, it's very unlikely that you're ever going to get any feedback. So you put it out and you forget it. You just yep. know that those decisions are not in your hands and it's the dangerous ones. It's the ones where you do get a bit of feedback and you think, oh, I could get this, that you allow yourself to put a bit of yourself in, you know? Um, <laughs> well, but- I think it's also, you know, apropos of the whole, the whole, uh, you know, very good, but not right uh, notion. Uh, 
someone who is not the word, the person who's the, you know, the bottom of the drama school is seemingly just as likely to land some game changing life altering audition right out of school that, you know, would seemingly make everybody go, well, wait a minute, you know, what the hell are they doing landing X, Y, Z big spot? It's like my father, he was a surgeon and he always used to say, you know, the nickname they give to the person who graduated at the bottom of the class in medical school, they call them doctor. Uh, and uh, it was like, you know, we're all walking out of here equally qualified and the perception of who is the best may be actually proven totally meaningless five seconds out of the gate. Exactly. Because also we're, we're taking luck completely out of it, which is if that person happens to be available, at a t- I think about this all the time, just like the, the, again, inflection points where you are right at the right time. Um, it's amazing how many stories you hear of the great artists, you know, the, the really successful people who might be in the zeitgeist. The story is usually they weren't that remarkable at drama school, and yeah. but they but they have allowed themselves professionally to flourish because they are brilliant at what they do, and they found a way of harnessing that and and seizing those opportunities and maintaining that that kind of momentum to a point where they are very very successful and winning awards and doing the right work. Um, right. and that is so, so common. I mean, imagine common for you with a lot of your colleagues where, you know, it, people call them late bloomers. I don't think it's that. I just think it's that they, they gave what they gave at the right time. Clive came along because I didn't get other roles that I really wanted. Mm. And I, if I hadn't, if I had got those other roles that I really wanted at the time, I wouldn't be here talking to you. I wouldn't be celebrating Final Fantasy 16. <laughs> I wouldn't have done any of that because I wouldn't have been available for it. And so- Why do I know my, that story? Yeah, and I'm going, wow, I'm here now doing the coolest thing that I've ever done in my career because of my failures. Because <laughs> of, the, you know, like I, it, 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 is, it is that. I wanted to be in this TV show and I got really, really close to it. And I was, I was testing with the lead actor and I was really devastated when I didn't get it. And then if I had got it, I would have been out filming when this audition came in. I never would have. Wow. I never, that's a, that's a, it's a very healthy perspective to keep for the next time you don't get something, uh, yeah. uh, you know, which invariably will be around the corner. You know, it, it happens to everybody all the time at every stage of success. Well, before we unpack uh, your experience on Final Fantasy, because obviously I do want to get into that. Um, uh, just take me back a little bit to that uh, that that other that other question of what what first put games on your radar and 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 you know if if those absolute earliest memories of watching your mom perform and and then pursuing acting and there's mm-hmm. on the one hand you're watching Ace Ventura and The Mask. Where mm-hmm. in there did games first appear and 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 just kind of what was your relationship with them through the years? I always wanted. A Nintendo. I always wanted a Sega, and I never got them. Um, or my friends had them, so I'd always see it from afar. But I did have a Game Boy, you know. I did, I, um, and that Game Boy a console known in. for its great acting. <laughs> oh my god, the, the the greatest performances of all time. <laughs> you don't know acting until you've played Batman the animated series yeah. over and over again. Paperboy. Uh, yeah, I. Um, those games are the things that got me into gaming. I would take that thing everywhere. I still have it. This little black yeah. case. Does it still turn thing. on? They kind of they kind of stop working after a while. On it, I had one that the battery. I left a battery in there for too long, and the battery like exploded, and so it yeah. just completely rotted the inside of it. No, this one still works. It still works, and it's one of the old ones. It's like one of the gray ones that probably just has all the dirt yeah. from decades and yeah, decades it's like of you. Super thick and 
<laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, like the chunkiest thing you've ever seen. Um, and then the first console I ever got was a PlayStation 1, and the first two games I ever got were Gran Turismo and Resident Evil 2. Um, mm. And I played about 10 minutes of Resident Evil 2, was way too scared, never played it again. And then Gran Turismo... <laughs> Uh, Gran Turismo was the, was the game that I would first play. And then it wasn't really until Final Fantasy VIII that I mm. I just was like, this is it, this is the future. And Final Fantasy changed everything um, because of the fact that it was on four discs. Um, it, it was just, it was longer than a novel. It's longer oh, than yeah. so many films. It was, it was a story on a scale that I had never seen before. Um, and then I was in, I mean, I've been on a PlayStation since, since I first got it, probably in 1998, 99. Um, and I've been playing constantly ever since. And I've had PlayStation one, PlayStation two, three, four, five. And I, um, I love it. I'm in the system. I'm in it. And I never had an Xbox and that wasn't that I dislike Xbox. It's just that I just stayed, I stayed loyal, even with the awful cell processor with uh, the PlayStation 3, you know, where Skyrim would like load itself on top of itself. It was the most unwieldy possible thing. Um, but I, I've loved gaming and it has always been my passion. It has always been what I do. I, I was very fortunate to do lots of drama and lots of sport and I was a very active kid, but I would always want to come home and play yeah. my, my PlayStation. Um, and I played everything on it, really all of them. Like I think about PlayStation 2 and like being obsessed with time splitters and SSX and, mm. and then, then devil may cry. Uh, just God of war, I think also, uh, started on PS2. Yes, it did. And God of, I remember the last two games I played on my PS2 were God of war two and final fantasy 12, like right. the two in the same year, the swan song for the PlayStation two were, were those two absolute masterpieces. And I just, they are they're God of War. I remember my parents were out for dinner and I think I just, that moment where you see Cronus for the first time, you hmm. come up and there is crawling in the desert. I'm thinking, this is, what? Um, yeah. That was just such Things that can create that feeling. Uh, yeah. We just absolutely live for those. I mean, it's just, it, 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 it's, and it's one of those, it's the tragedy of becoming a connoisseur that it's increasingly challenging to, to surprise someone with with one of those moments where you just you just feel like what did I just experience? What did I just witness? I'm trying to think of the last game that gave me that feeling, uh, like you're describing, because I, I so relate. Like I, like for me that that first time down in the bathosphere in Bioshock, 2006 or so, when you you get that speech, you know, no says the man in Washington from Andrew Ryan, and then the reveal of Rapture. That was mm -hmm. such an incredible way to start a game um, that I just I just remember being I was so hooked. And then likewise, I remember I remember being so blown away that uh, that that they managed to basically pull the same exact trick, but by flipping the the biome, they they did it again. And it, I was just as impressed at the beginning of Bioshock Infinite when you shoot up into the sky and then come drifting down through the clouds. Mm -hmm. Um, I uh, just was, uh, yeah, those, those moments, um, trying to drive me crazy, trying to think of the last time I, I really felt that, but, but no, what I love, what I also love is that it sounds like the final fantasy franchise in particular, um, has had its claws in you, you know, yeah. from, from, I mean, seven and eight are, 
are in so many ways the beginning of Final Fantasy because it was it was a far more niche thing up to that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, players who who played one through six tended to be very hardcore JRPG fans, which in the U.S. was always a minority of the gaming population relative to uh, more mainstream Nintendo, especially like Mario, Pokemon, etc. Uh, like those, just I think were far more culturally in the in the norm. Um, mm. But seven just broke the seal and and exploded outward, and and it just and then and of course eight, you know, continued that forward. So it sounds like you were yeah. you were kind of right there at the at the front lines of like this is now a very mainstream title in that mainstream in the sense of it's a big deal. Every time a new one of these comes out, everybody pays attention to it. It's yep. it's just assumed it will be one of the contenders for game of the year at all the various spots that do that. Like it's just, yeah. it's just a thing. Um, and you know, through, through to today. So, uh, well, so then let me ask you then, let's just take it right up to 16. Um, it is a recurring story from actors that when they are auditioning for a role in a game like yeah. that, they have no idea what they're auditioning for. Was that the case or did you, did you have a sense or what was the story? That is the case. I did not have a clue. Um, I, remember i'm pretty good at guessing because i've got my finger on the pulse of video games i listen to all the podcasts uh, you know i'm <laughs> a regular devourer of, of of video game adjacent content um, oh, i love that so I, I kind of know what's happening i listen to all the news and etc um so it is very rare for me to kind of not really know what the game is um i remember yeah, I and 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 sixteen just didn't know because there was that video game. Final Fantasy isn't recorded in the UK. It is on fourteen, but I didn't know that this would be the case. I wouldn't certainly didn't think that I would ever be auditioning for that. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I went in for a small character, um, and they and I ended up auditioning for the lead halfway through the audition. Um, I uh, they said, Ben, could you read this instead? And I read that site read it. Um, and they gave me the role four days later. Wow. Um, and, uh, is that common? Which, I, I often, it, it uh, seems like often there's a lot of read again, read again, now a chemistry test, now a this, now a that, that feels pretty quick. Yeah. Very quick. Very quick. I, I, and so imagine, imagine me finally getting the script and being told you're the lead in final fantasy 16. <laughs> and then they were like, I'm like, what? And then they just say, come into the booth and start recording. That's, that's weird. Um, because are you sure, are you sure you want to give me the role? So I spent such a long time questioning in my head, all the ways that it could absolutely self-destruct that I could ruin it completely because I didn't feel worthy because I hadn't been tested. I hadn't gone through the furnace. I didn't have the, the double, triple, quadruple tick. That's like, great, let's go. I mean, I already had, it had been, my audition had been through all the appropriate channels. Naoki Yoshida had, had seen it. Everyone had seen it and they were like, yes, this is Clive, but still I hadn't seen that. And what, what, um, what was your game acting experience like prior to this? That's actually one of those that I, I, I meant to look up before we chatted and I ran out of time, but you, you, you must've done some game, I mean, you know, just if nothing else, bit parts or something, right? Yeah, some. I'd done some, but I didn't deserve this. Um, I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't, I, 
no. Well, let's I, hope I, they don't find out about that and uh, no. and say, oh, yeah. he didn't deserve. Oh shit! Well, we got to patch the. Take it all back. Yeah. Yeah. The next next patch is just me being replaced with someone else. Yeah. Um, I'd done I'd done small parts. I'd done a bit in Quantum Break. I'd done a bit in Company of Heroes. Um, I was I was in A Way Out. You know, I'd done ah. like vo- additional voices for stuff, um, but nothing like this. Um, at the same time, actually, as doing sixteen, I auditioned and got the part of young Vesemir in um, the AR Witcher game, which I really thought was cool. So they released an A and an AR Witcher game called The Witcher Monster Slayer, and CD Projekt had given me the role of young Vesemir. <clears throat> Sorry, and I was like, oh my god. I'm the lead in Final Fantasy 16 and I'm young Vesemir. And I think I did like four hours of recording and then that game ended up getting canned. And I was like, <laughs> I ruined The Witcher. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was- <laughs> Yeah, it was all on you. It was all on me. What um, was the but, scope of this? Uh, you know, when, when, when did that four days later call come relative to today? How long ago? Um, it came in July. It came in July of 2019. And then not long afterwards, I was recording. And it um, must have, I, I mean, it must have been like a billion sessions in the, in the booth. Was it yeah. this mo-capped? It must have been. So we had a fate, so we had a rig on our head. Um, they were at the same time doing mocap in Hungary and Japan. So they had the, the people moving around and doing the scenes. And then we had uh, a head cam and then they would basically put our facial movements onto the characters heads and stuff. So um, it was really, what is that experience like as an actor? Because you full use of the body, especially with you having theater and film and TV experience where that's, there's no not doing that. It's never just, I mean, unless you're the voice of the computer on Star Trek or something, or, you know, that's a body experience Mm -hmm. to see someone else's physical movements somehow having to mesh with your, I mean, I can't even really begin. It must've been surreal to say the least, if not a source of interesting, like, Oh, that's not what I would have done. Interesting. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself um, as an actor. Um, it was. It feels it, like one of those tip of the iceberg. There's a lot answer. of good and bad below that statement. <laughs> yeah, because I think it was a very difficult but freeing process. Um, I was given a lot of bandwidth to shape Clive, and um, I, we were able to find stuff within that that. I never otherwise wouldn't have found. And I think that also meant that I, because of the freedom I was given for Clive, I was able to make a lot of mistakes. Um, mm. And so what you do is you reveal a lot of yourself through those sessions. And when you're very vulnerable with your team, that can be a good and a bad thing. Um, and you can, you can, um, maybe be hard on yourself if you're not doing the right thing um, and annoyed if your choices that you make aren't necessarily working. And sometimes mm-hmm. you're tying yourself up in knots because you want to both serve the story and give an honest performance. Um, and that was so rewarding. Um, and I can say that now having done it, um, but there's a reason why it took four years because we wanted to get it right. Um, and there are bits in this game that I look back on and I'm just so proud of because it was those moments of, of synergy between mm. what I wanted to achieve and what we actually achieved. And we go, that's it. That's what I was looking for. That's what I wanted. I want, I wanted something that felt 
structured, but also quite raw. I talk about it a lot. The, the, those moments that just take you by surprise, that you kind of forget that you're watching a performance and you think you're like, you're watching a real person. And I hate watching myself. So um, those moments are really, I'm like, oh God, that must be quite good. Um, because even I don't hate it. Um, so yeah, it was- it Is there was something a, it, universally translatable about that that would be- part of your toolkit moving forward or does it feel very contextual to what you were trying to achieve with Clive in this game? Uh, I'd say, um, the, the biggest, the thing that I have found that I would pass on to anything is make a choice and be prepared to fail. I think if you, mm. if you're not prepared, if you're not prepared to fail, obviously you have to feel safe enough to fail. And I was very lucky to be surrounded by people who I now love and love me. And so there was this sense of safety. Right. that I could go to places they allowed me to go to without fear of judgment. Um, right. And uh, so I was allowed, I was allowed to do stuff that other people might ridicule. You know, a lot of out voice actors, they turn up in a session, they don't know the producer, they don't know the director, they turn up, they've got to say some lies and leave. And there's all of the the cats dancing around each other thinking, let's try and figure each other out. We've got, you know, got we've got to get 40 lines done in this in this half an hour session. That's what we've got to do. But in, in this, it was, it was, let's, we, I was on this for four years. God, the mistakes we made. It was. You said 2019. Was, Does that mean you were yeah. still recording this year? Is that even possible? No, it wasn't. It was just, I mean, it, what we weren't recording this year, but I still call it four years from the moment of like starting on it to finishing when it finally came out. Um, we well, finished. Uh, yeah, to uh, that's totally fair. I, I just, uh, it was more curious. Like it, that was, a better way to phrase that was when did you wrap your sessions relative to the release? Because sometimes it is actually pretty quite a while, quite a, quite a while before that. Like I think there was a real confidence with what they wanted to make. Um, like it was, it was there was a real sense of like we when it was done, there was no kind of need to come back and re-record anything because we'd spent so long kind of stitching it together that mm. we, you know, there was a big gap for not a big gap, but there was a, we all had it, the gap for COVID, mm -hmm. not really knowing what's going on. And, and it changed a lot because a lot of the team here in Japan couldn't come over anymore. Um, but yeah, we, once, once it was finished, you know, I had to come back and do some more recording for some trailers or whatever. I had to right. you know, revisit Clive to, you know, do revenge is a weapon for the, which is a line I had to do for the game awards trailer. And there were bits that I had to add in for, for whatever, for whatever promotional stuff. And then it was all just like going to press events and, and right. talking about the game in whatever way. But it's the, it's the, it's the, the strain, that strange thing of, of prepping for something and then it becoming real and then people judging you for it. Oh, the judging. It's, they, <laughs> I'm sure you Well, I, I, I mean, it seems like it's been incredibly well received. I've only been able to, uh, personally, make it a few hours into the game. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> the bulk of your performance, uh, I've still yet to make it to. Um, uh, but I certainly, from talking to my friends, especially friends of mine that are just like diehard, like they, they will, by the end of the first weekend, they will have beaten, like no matter yeah. if it's 80 hours, they will, they will, you know, Monday morning, blood red eyes. They were like, nothing could stop me. <laughs> um, uh, and everybody seems to, you know, just the game has been incredibly well received. It seems, uh, you know, across the board, a, a, a actor friend of mine, um, I was messaging with the other day, um, a guy named Rahul Kohli. I'm not sure if you're familiar with who he yeah, is, but, uh, yeah. he was 
I, I told him I was going to be chatting with you and he was like, man, Clive is just so fucking sexy, man. He was just really, <laughs> he was, he was extremely, uh, he was, he was, I think, ready to get down on one knee for you basically uh, after uh, making his way through Final Fantasy 16. So I would call yeah. that well judged. Yes. I, um, I, he Instagrammed me actually the other day. Sorry, I've got something in my throat. <clears> throat> There you go. That's Talking about Rahul, I guess, just does that. Yeah, it's just got something. He'll be thrilled to know that. I'll send him this mm. clip. He'll, yeah, he'll feel he'll thoroughly appreciated. <laughs> there we go. Um, yes, he. Um, so Rahul um, uh, sent me, tagged me in an Instagram post of him doing an impression of me. Um, and I thought that was the greatest, <laughs> the greatest honor of an actor that I admire doing an impression. Um, that was That's cool. So yeah, I mean. I think through this process, I can't take credit for any of the game other than what I did as an actor. And so when I take away, you know, how people talk about it, I, I feel so honored that um, the work that we did as a cast has been celebrated in the way that it has um, because so much work went into it and so much of our time went into it and, and people really, really, really care. Um, and so that was really, really um, gratifying. Um, and like I say, there's so much of a lot of things that happened in my life during the process of making the game that, and I've spoken about it before, how much of my own personal experience of loss and, and pain and stuff I've placed into it that you put that out in the world and you think, God, it better be good, Ben. You've, 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 you know, it, it better be good. Um, and yeah, I, I like, I like that, um, people have appreciated, even if they don't like the work, they have appreciated the work, um, which is nice. Yeah. Well, I think we live in a world increasingly, I don't know if it's because of social media or maybe it's things like this, like podcasts and the general uh, behind the scenes stuff that's accessible to folks. But it does seem like we there's an increased amount of sort of literacy in what it takes to make these just amongst sort of the average player where people can start to sort of disentangle things where they might go, oh, I didn't love the game, but you were great in it. Or or like I'll, I'll get comments occasionally from folks along those lines where they'll say, oh, this game really wasn't for me, but I, I thought musically what you were doing was really was really cool. Or of course, you'll get the opposite every now and again. Oh, the the one thing I didn't like about it was the music. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I think that in, in prior eras, you know, it was more just like, oh, that game sucks. And there's no even attempt to say, well, yeah. actually, it's not that it sucked. It's just, I didn't, the mechanics felt janky to me, but actually the art direction was great. The music was great. It was well executed, you know, sound design, the the menu art was lovely. Like I could name all these things about it that work, but there's this one thing that held me off that yeah. was important enough that I would say it's a game I don't particularly like, even with having all these positive things to say about it. That seems to be more and more common, which is I would I would hope only benefits someone like you where they could say, Yeah, this it, isn't for it me. Really but does. boy, you crushed it. Yeah, it really does. And it's just, it's a strange thing where, you know, even if people have come up to me and said I didn't like this about this or that, but they've they've kind of felt the need to compliment the work. Um, it's okay for people not to like stuff. It's, it really is because the stuff that I play that it just doesn't click with me, but it's, it's not kind of saying this is objectively bad or this is objectively good. It's saying, I just, I didn't get on with a certain thing about a game. And as a, as a game player myself, I recognize that. And I think that whenever, when also when we are playing games, we are playing them under very specific circumstances. So if the circumstances under which you are playing that game 
are not conducive <laughs> to oh, the type yeah. of game that you're playing. It, it, it's just that harmony is not there and you're going to hate something. And so I always, as a gamer, try and split things up. So I'm playing, uh, if, I'm, if I've played a big, long 100-hour or 80-hour AAA open-world collectathon, I do not want to be playing another one immediately after. I'm probably going to play an indie somewhere. I'm probably going to play a, a three to six hour puzzler or like walking simulator with an emotional core with great soundtrack and amazing animations. Like that's probably what I'm going to play then next to just cut it up so everything feels fresh and new and, and resonates with me a lot stronger. Yeah, I think that that mixed diet is so is so uh, is so crucial and it's so nice to kind of finally after a lifetime of being a gamer and I, I got into it, uh, around the same time of maybe a few years before uh, I'm only a couple years older than you. And probably that margin earlier, uh, is when I got into games. So we were probably about the same age, mm. uh, uh, in our respective timelines and the, just the diversification of the diet that is available now is so orders of magnitude beyond what it was I mean, we still had a lot of because in the '90s, you know, I would bounce around between strategy games like Command and Conquer and Warcraft uh, One, Two, Three, and Starcraft and Total Annihilation and all these kinds. And then you swing over into the point-and-click adventures, and then you go to you know first-person shooters like Doom or you know Wolfenstein or 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 uh, you know Outlaws, Dark Forces, the Lucas Arts uh, games in that world, and obviously the RPGs, Chrono Cross, Chrono Trigger. Final Fantasy yeah. five six seven that you know those kind of mid nineties uh, there was still decent amount of choice but now I mean it's just un uncountable uh, yep. what there is and I remember there was our, 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 a, a quote I love to repeat one of the producers when we were working on Journey said we're trying to make this game for people that don't know yet that they love games uh, and it was kind of with that in mind uh, of what you just said where there's people who need the, uh, need a different entry point in the same way that sometimes you need to be able to shift your diet. You're like, I've had a lot of meat. I really just need mm-hmm. a salad right now. Or I really just need a, an iced tea, <laughs> something to break up the flow. Um, and uh, we're finally there. It's very exciting. I um, I went on a, uh, I, did a, I did a show, I did a chat with, with, um, a lovely woman called Lauren Kay about the games that made me. And one of the games that made me was Journey. And I speak exactly that, which is I recommend Journey to people who have never played video games before. I think it is the perfect first video game for anyone because we take for granted as gamers all of the things that we know because we have that just muscle memory. And the language, you know, we know what a red barrel is because we've played, Mm -hmm. we don't remember the first time we saw one, you know, it's already that ingrained. Yes. It's, it's, it's something that can't really be spoken about. It's just known. It's acceptable. I know most things about uh, the type of video game that I'm playing because I've done it so many times before, but journey is a game that can teach you them in ways that you don't realize you're being taught because Mm -hmm. it's, it's just so perfectly simple. And then from that, can you can build the language? And I, I just, I, I mean, I, I gushed to you before when we started, but I just think the soundtrack is, is so much a part of that. And I apologize for, um, for embarrassing you, but I, no, I think you're, really, you're very kind, but I, I can only just echo when you were saying how you felt very lucky working with the team on Final Fantasy 16, 
that you were in early enough and they trusted you enough and you developed that camaraderie that, that you really were able to help shape that character. Uh, that's all I could ever say about Journey is because I was there from the very beginning and because I was able to iterate and fail a lot and they, they never had any intention of uh, spoken dialogue or even text on screen. I always knew the music was going to be very naked and exposed, which was a very trusting place that they they gave me. So I always looked at it as my job was basically just to, to not fail because I could tell from the earliest days that the game was shaping up to be something really spectacularly beautiful and interesting and evocative. And I actually was not at all prepared for or anticipating how emotional it would make people. It seemed like the, I just remember thinking, I just hope people kind of go, Oh wow. Yeah. This is, this is exploring interesting ideas or something. I just thought that'll be our, of course we wanted people to have emotional resonance with it, but I just never anticipated people could, could, it could become so personal for them the way that, that it, uh, for, for many it did. Um, but I, but yeah, the main thing was just like, I felt grateful that they were putting me in this position of trust and that we could try it a lot of times, you know, mm. every piece of fragment, every note that's in there is version like a hundred because mm. it was, let's, let's, uh, let's play with it. Let's, let's try things. Let's try the bad ideas and then whittle from there, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, it's, it's, I, it's, it was deeply collaborative. I take marginal credit at best. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, that it was just luck, you know, very, very luck. And also I was weirdly at the right, you know, when you mentioned the casting director, uh, uh, that it was kind of that, that magic moment in your life, you know, I was exactly the right age and, and, and like amount of broader curiosity. And I think the game was too, it came out, if Journey had come out much later than that, I suspect it would have been lost in the crowd. You know, it would seem to, it seemed to have just cosmically perfect timing that none of us could have engineered, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's a, that's another one of those pills that can be difficult for creative people to swallow, uh, you know, sometimes, because how many, how many great films have you watched or games that you've played that no one knows about? And you were like, man, if this had come out one year earlier, one year later, or if it hadn't been for this, or it hadn't been for that, or like when I was walking out of Troy and I went and saw uh, Indiana Jones 5 and he goes, think how much we would have enjoyed this if there hadn't been other Indiana Jones movies, you know, it's yeah. like it, it, this, every, there's a lot to love about this, but nested within, you know, when and where and its predecessors, there's a lot of things working against it before you've watched frame one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, that's just how it goes sometimes. And not one person who worked on the film could be blamed for any of that. There's, I mean, there's a lot that I could say to that. Um, I think I think about that a lot. But with regards to games, I think one of the more obvious examples of that is what people would consider to be the greatest first-person shooter campaign of all time, which is Titanfall 2, and how people feel that that game is so underrated because of the time that it was released by EA at the time. Mm. And it was up against Battlefield and Call of Duty. And it was released in this window where it just, it just died. It died yeah. on the vine. And that story and what it achieves technically and just emotionally is just lost because of that. And everyone will call it the, the, the most underrated experiences. And I remember playing it and just being like, wow, why were, why were not more people speaking about the greatness of this, of mechanically how far ahead of its time it was? Um, it just, there you go. And it's, and it's that. And it could have been the one that we, that people, 
no, don't just talk about critically, but talk about commercially as well. And it just, it just didn't happen. And you're right with Journey. Like it, that game is great because it's a great game. Um, but also it hit me at a time that just, just, just changed everything. It's the game that got me into indies. At that point, I then played pretty much every indie that I could possibly hmm. get my hands on. I think I went from Journey to the Unfinished Swan to Limbo to... Um, oh, man. Freaking Play Dead. To me, Inside is maybe the most perfect game ever made. Yep. To me, Inside is just flawless. I literally wouldn't change one, no matter how nitpicky and fractionally, like one pixel... I just think it's just immaculate execute. It's one of those things that the best games, I would argue, do things that only a game could do. That's yes. sort of my, that's sort of my, that's like where I get, that's where I have this weird schizophrenia with, with a game like Death Stranding, where it feels like it's trying to be so filmic, but yet mm-hmm. it is also just the whole idea of, no, you're going to walk. We're going to push you to just, traverse this terrain in a way that no movie would ever subject you to 20 hours of watching somebody just walk. Mm -hmm. Like you need to go through that and physically do it and not overburden your pack and deal with the rain and, and you know, the weird, interesting kind of asynchronous social component of, I I, I think about all that and I'm like, wow, that is actually really bold and interesting game design in a way that only a game could do. I just wish it didn't have to my taste, 40,000 hours of cutscenes. Um, uh, sort of constantly pulling me out of that, but that's that's mm-hmm. just me. But but inside, on the other hand, it's like every single part of this could only be a game, and that yeah. to me makes it just one of the most special experiences ever. And I I love that about I just love that about what indies can do in general is they are afforded the opportunity to do that. You know, often it's it's that perfect blend of both systems and story, where yeah. there'll be a unique system that is probably useful for the three to five hours you know that you can play they've gone we we have developed a system that will will can capture your attention for four hours and we will put a story that that tells that and it's the story through systems or systems through story and i and i really love that blend of of two things and i think we're so fortunate to have all those when people are like what what indie should i get into i'm like let me tell you about what remains of edith finch and you just (laughs) There are certain levels in that. I mean, I still, I, I remember emailing, I think, the guy who created Edith Finch thing, have you thought of making this into a TV show? Because it would be interesting to make it into a TV mm. show, but I think it would lose everything that is brilliant about it in the process of turning that into a TV show. Um, because when there's a, there's a scene in the cannery where you are cutting fish and you are That's telling the, a story. That's for fish. sure the most, uh, yeah, that, that whole sequence was unforgettable. Yeah. And it's, it's that you go, well, there's the system, there's the story, there's the perfect blend. And that's why video games are, are art. And, um, we had to have those moments is, is really amazing. Um, so yeah, good for them. Good for games. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers to games as a broad statement. That's our hot take, yeah. uh, of, yeah. uh, this fine installment of the game makers notebook. Uh, well, look, man, uh, you've been very generous with your time, um, and uh, it's it's fascinating. I, I just really enjoyed – there's something actually beautifully um, refreshing and enjoyable that we spent so much time in the kind of abstract space of what we get from the our relationship with our, our work and our creativity and, and all of that without, you know, you know sp- spending the entire time sort of fixated on – your Final Fantasy 16 experience or anything like that, though 
it's 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 compelling in its own right. But I just I, I think you've got a lot of very interesting and, and wonderful perspectives on on the medium and on the and on the art. And I always I always uh, vicariously feed off of that a lot. I love talking to folks, literally of any discipline, who just spend a lot of time thinking about what they do in their discipline. That's why it's so fascinating when you mentioned. Uh, that there's potentially something wrong with the idea of what's your name, where are you from, and what do you do as as a reductive thing where I thought, well, in your case at least, the question of what you do um, is opens this door to an hour and a half conversation that's yeah. full of little interesting gems and tidbits and stuff. So I don't know that I feel too badly about leading with a question like that. Uh, but... Uh, but your point is very well taken and well made. I'm not. Uh, I'm not sideswiping it or trying to say you were wrong. But it, it, it is sideswiping what you want. Yeah. Well, you know, I just. I think you. You. Sometimes I have an actor friend who was once on a TV show, and it did really well for him, and it opened up a lot of doors. Um, and he was consistently working through the years, and then years later, that same showrunner came back and asked him to. Uh, read for a part on a new show, and he 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 got the he got the job on that one as well, and he said that the feedback he got, because he felt he blew the audition, but he mm. kind of got he got one crucial line right, but the rest he felt he he fell on his face, and he said the showrunner called him and reaffirmed that he said, you did terribly, but that one line was the one line I really cared about, and you crushed that, and here's what it told me, a lot of people especially those that find a little bit of success in this field in particular, quickly let the extraneous aspects of that success be the thing that drives them. They want to go on the talk shows. They want to have a big following on social media. They want to make a lot of money. They want to do brand endorsements. They want to blah, 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 blah. And he says, you've managed to keep your eye on the craft. And he said, I'm casting you because it's clear that the doors that were opened by you landing the gig 20 years ago when we did our first show together has been a vehicle for you to go deeper with the art. And you're a different actor than you were then. And that's what I, I want to see where we can go now because of that. And he said it was the best compliment and best feedback on he'd ever gotten by far. It was, it was, you've done a lot of work clearly. And I, and I want to see where the, the road leads. And I, that has struck a chord with me so much when he said that of just, always keeping it about the work, always keeping it about how do we get better at this such that we look back and go, Oh, like that, like in my case, the guy that did journey didn't know anything, Yeah, <laughs> you know, that because it, it opened doors, but it opened doors to work harder, not just yeah. coast or whatever. I know we're probably wrapping things up, but I just want to say that when I was at university, I was a member of an improvised musical society and oh, we would man, go. I so admire we... people that can do that. And because I'm an idiot and I just thought I'm going to jump off this cliff and I love being absolutely terrified and I love oh, yeah. that fear and I live for that fear. And that's got to be the among the most apex predator versions of fear though. I mean, it's, it's like all the th things that people are most scared of wrapped into a single package. Yeah. It's, 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 it's absolutely terrifying and, and stupid and also wonderful when it goes right. And I think that is something that I will continue to do and, and have kind of continued to do in my career is just make, make choices that challenge you and jump, jump into the unknown and whatever goes from here, you know, after Final Fantasy, I just really want to just do stuff that scares me. So 
Well, that's a perfect button. Perfect note to end it on. Uh, thanks so much, man. Really, I, I just absolutely love hearing how you unpack this stuff. And I hope folks uh, enjoy it half as much as I did. I'm sure they will. Awesome, man. It's lovely to talk. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.